Welcome back to Orthodox.Faith. This is John Harmon. And this is Ron Bentley. This is the last episode in our series on basic Christian theology. Yeah. In this episode, we look into the future in order to consider a doctrine of last things. Or in other words, what we believe about the end times when Christ returns and God completes the work of redeeming and restoring creation. Based on Scripture, what expectations do we have? And what do they mean for us today as we live looking forward to what God will finally do? And Ron will get us started on our journey to the end. There is a point in the communion services for some churches where the congregation joins in what is sometimes called the memorial acclamation. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. In a slightly longer form, it might go like this. We remember his death. We proclaim his resurrection. We await his coming in glory. The writers of the New Testament were keen to emphasize that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was a beginning. Jesus would return, he would come again, and lots of interesting things could happen at that point. In many accounts, Jesus returns to take away those he chooses. The language used to express this is spectacular, but the New Testament writers were just as clear that no one has any idea when all of this will happen. What we've come to is literally the end. This is the end of our series on basic Christian theology, and the topic is what we might call the end of all things. Greek speakers would frequently use the word eschaton to designate an end, the furthest extent of something, the place where something comes to an end. That word gives its name to this topic. We call it eschatology, the story of the end. However, there is another sense of the English word end that is also clearly in play here. When we talk about the end of something, we might also be talking about its ultimate purpose the point at which something reaches its completion or possibly even perfection. This understanding of the English word end is often associated with the Greek word telos, which can sometimes mean purpose as well. At this point, I need to acknowledge a factor that's particularly apparent among certain groups of Christians in the United States. They enjoy speculating at great length and in great detail about how the end of the world will play out. They take various difficult and mysterious passages of Scripture as a roadmap for what God intends to do, and they go to great lengths to construct schemes that make these roadmaps agree. I'm not convinced that's the role these passages of Scripture are supposed to play, that they are precise roadmaps for the future. I'm even more inclined to think the speculation that surrounds them is futile at best and frequently the source of unnecessary conflict. If we learn anything from the experience of first century Jews looking forward to a Messiah, it should be that God can work in surprising ways. There will be much about God's ultimate plan that we simply will not understand until God actually executes it. So where do we draw the line? What can we say about the ultimate end of this part of God's plan and our own individual purpose? Here's where I look for a guide. In the second century, as churches sought ways to educate new Christians, they began creating short summaries of the faith that new Christians would memorize prior to their baptism. We have reason to believe these early baptismal formula looked much like the text many of us know as the Apostles' Creed. We might ask the question, what did these ancient formula consider the most essential eschatological statements? Now, for those who want to emphasize here that Scripture alone should guide us, I might point out that that is mostly what these formula were intended to do. They were to guide new Christians in what Scripture said. It was at once a summary of Scripture, a statement of what was most important, and a guide 
to understanding scripture when these new Christians heard it read aloud later. But what are the essential eschatological statements in this creedal material? There are at least two. As the Apostles' Creed wraps up the statement specifically about Jesus Christ, it states that Christians believe Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. That's the first statement. The second statement comes at the very end of the creed. Christians believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Break those out in another way, and we're looking at about four different things here. The return of Jesus, the ultimate judgment of all who have ever lived, resurrection of the body, and eternal life. We've already talked a little about the return of Jesus. I want to start with the resurrection. There are hints throughout the Old Testament that embodied existence is what God always intended for us. In that majestic story of creation, Adam and Eve were never intended to die. Again, make of that what you will, but the theological point is fairly clear. God intended for humans to live on forever. Death shows up as the result of sin and evil. In other places in the Old Testament, particularly Isaiah and Daniel, we see clear expectations that God would return to life those who had died. This is perhaps clearest in some of the apocryphal material, though that material written between the Old and New Testaments. There was a difficult time in Jewish experience when Jews living in the Holy Land were subject to Greek rule. Some of the Greek rulers were particularly vicious in the way they tried to enforce Greek practice and discourage Jewish practice. There's one particularly harrowing account in a book known as Second Maccabees, where a mother and her seven sons are martyred for their refusal to give up Jewish practice. Their bodies are mutilated and they are literally boiled alive in oil. As one of the brothers goes to his death, he lashes out at the Greek ruler. God will restore the body the ruler is about to destroy, the son insists, and then God will judge between him and the ruler. Two things jump out in that account. The son believes God will fully restore his body, and God will do that so that God can judge. Here we have resurrection and judgment side by side precisely so that God's ultimate justice can be expressed. When we get to the first century, there are still disagreements between Jews about whether resurrection was something people should look forward to. The Pharisees said yes, others said no. For all Jesus had to disagree with the Pharisees, when asked point blank about resurrection, Jesus essentially said the Pharisees were right. Looking back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus observed that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of the living, not the dead. Somehow in this perspective, the dead Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are really alive. Once Christians saw Jesus himself raised back to life, it opened an astounding set of possibilities. Christians would then insist on several things together, the return of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, and a final judgment. That gets us three of the four creedal pieces, but what are the fourth? Eternal life. Here it might help to introduce one additional concept, that of an immortal soul. Some have tried to argue that Christians insist on resurrection, but not an immortal disembodied soul. The indestructible disembodied soul, so the argument goes, is just a Greek idea that has corrupted a pure commitment to resurrection. I don't find this argument convincing. Resurrection, for all of us except Jesus, is usually discussed as a future expectation. And yet, there certainly are places in the New Testament where we find a discussion of something that happens to us immediately following death. Today you will be with me in paradise, Jesus tells one of the men on the cross beside him. To die is to be with Christ, Paul writes to the Philippians as he contemplates his own potential execution. 
Throughout the New Testament, the phrase eternal life shows up over and over again. I suspect the best way to make sense of this is that the phrase eternal life covers everything from the hope of resurrection to the notion that something essential about ourselves is safe in the hands of God when we die. However, there's more to it than that. Eternal life refers to everything that is happening in our lives as God transforms us from individuals who are slaves to sin and evil and into human beings that are alive and free to be what God always intended us to be. There's more than we first realized to the phrase, God is the God of the living, not the dead. It also means God intends for us to be alive. In the fifth chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus says some remarkable things. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Present tense, has eternal life, has it now. Jesus goes on in the next verse, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's the remarkable piece. Whatever God intends for us in eternity, it begins, or at least it can begin, right now. Now let's address some objections. It's been said that the Christian hope for eternal life is pie in the sky at best. At worst, it leaves Christians too heavenly minded for any earthly good. More to the point, it frustrates the efforts of those who want to enlist Christians in their own crusades for justice in the world here and now. In its most extreme form, some will insist that so-called spiritualized salvation is absolutely worthless unless it expresses itself in urgent demands for justice and attempts to restructure society immediately. Join the revolution, so to speak, or your salvation is worthless. This demand falls short precisely for the reason that every attempt at utopia falls short. It fails to take seriously the way that sin and evil will ultimately corrupt any form we humans use to construct society. Rearrange who's in power, redistribute wealth, build new ways for decisions to be made, and watch sin and evil set in all over again to corrupt the new order. That is not to say Christians always stand idly by. We pursue justice eagerly when it can be achieved. However, we also recognize that until God recreates us individually and the world around us, sin and evil will always find a way to twist our best intentions and destroy the good we seek to create. The objection fails then because it does not take seriously how much our hope depends on God and the work that God alone must do to redeem the world. Here's a second objection. This is one of the saddest, and it gives voice to despair and hopelessness. It asks, who wants to live forever? Surely at some point, we become so tired and exhausted of our own existence that we welcome non-existence. Assume we could live for centuries. Surely at some point, we will willingly extinguish our world-weary consciousness in blissful nothingness. Some would even turn this into a virtue. It is our mortality, they insist, that gives meaning to our lives. Unless we die, the many small things we might enjoy throughout our lives have no meaning. This objection fails for lack of imagination. The answer is crucial to what we Christians say about ourselves, our world, the universe, and God. Take away the effects of sin and evil, as only God can do, and we can most certainly exist in a state of perpetual joy as we revel in our growing knowledge of God, the companions God created around us, and the virtually infinite world we inhabit. Say this another way. God is so great, so good, and so vast that eternity cannot exhaust the joy we can find in the presence of God. That is eternal life, 
And even more astoundingly, this end that lasts forever, it starts now. In ancient times, it was common to understand the world and its history as being something that cycled in a loop, just going around and around in circles, but not in any particular direction. Ancient Jews and Christians, however, looked at history differently, and the Bible gives us very good reasons for doing so. Human history does not go endlessly in circles, but it progresses toward a finish in which God has promised to set all things right and to complete the restoration and renewal of God's created order that began as soon as humankind and creation fell in Genesis 3. The end of the world as we know it is called in Greek the eschaton. The study of the last things or the end times is called eschatology. It can be easy to drift to a couple of extremes when we talk about the end, and we want to avoid both. First is an over-obsession with the future, where we try to see everything in terms of the end of the world, and we lose the sense that there is much more to theology than merely what is to come. It's understandable because we want to know the future, and of course it makes sense to fix our eyes on the ultimate goal and how God is going to finish redeeming all things, but this can cause us to neglect what is happening around us here and now. At the other extreme is avoiding all discussion of the goal or the end of history altogether. Perhaps in response to those who get overly lost in prophecy or in obsessing about the future and how and when the world will end, some take the opposite approach. Rather than seeing everything in terms of the end, they choose to look at nothing related to the end. Neither of these extremes is biblical and healthy. We should look for a more helpful middle ground. It might help for us to ask, why does the Bible address the end of the world at all? I think Paul sums it up in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he writes about the return of Jesus Christ, which will be the definitive close of history. Some people in the church back then who had lost loved ones were grieving and upset because those loved ones had passed away before Christ came back. They, understandably, worried that those folks had missed out on the eternal kingdom. But Paul explains, beginning in verse 13, that the future of all believers is one of hope, because when Christ returns, all will be resurrected. Then Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. The purpose of the Bible telling us anything about the end is to encourage and comfort us here and now. If we keep this in mind when we talk about the last things, it'll help us to stay between the ditches. These doctrines are not given to satisfy our curiosity or our fixations on the future, nor to give us things to speculate about or to frighten others with. Their purpose is to build up faith, to give us hope, and to free us from anxiety so that we can love God and our neighbors without distraction right now. So a doctrine of last things is not only about the future. Scripture has long looked forward to a time when God will set all things right, when justice will be perfectly realized and humankind and creation will be restored to all that God intends them to be. That cannot come about unless God brings it about. And the Old Testament looked forward to what is called the Day of the Lord. We know this time now is the second coming of Christ, which he himself promised in the Gospels. 
The white-robed figures in Acts chapter 1 make the same promise about him, and Paul says it clearly also in First and Second Thessalonians and in Titus 2, and he makes reference to Jesus' return in many other places, along with Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, First John, and of course, the book of Revelation. Christ will come again. We do not know when, nor can we calculate the day, but we know that when he comes, he will come suddenly, in person, bodily, not just spiritually, and triumphantly. The one who was humiliated will be exalted, and the one who was judged will be the judge when he returns. The second coming will be nothing like the first in that sense. From our human standpoint, perhaps the most significant result of Christ's return is our resurrection. This is our hope in the face of death. We humans expect to die one day, and by that we mean that life in this familiar bodily state will come to an end, not that we cease to exist altogether. We remember that death is not part of God's original creation. It is not natural to humans. It's foreign and hostile. Paul calls it an enemy in 1 Corinthians 15. We were created for life, not for death. God is moving history toward a completion in which life as God intended will be ours to live for eternity. When Christ returns, all the dead will be physically resurrected and God's justice will be perfectly dispensed. Although we can't pin down exactly what our resurrected bodies will be like, we know that we will maintain our full identity and will have no pain, illness, or death as part of our new physical existence. God will, as he must if he is loving, judge evil and reward faith and faithfulness. All that is opposed to God is by definition evil, and it will not remain to enjoy his presence. The choice to reject God in this life will be honored in the end, and those who make that choice will receive what they desire, that is, not to be in God's presence. Likewise, those who choose God and receive salvation by grace through faith will also receive what they desire. These are not all happy thoughts, but our happiness with something that is true is not what makes it true, just as our distaste for something that is true does not make it untrue. The Bible plainly presents the fact that there is a natural consequence for sin that rejects God and God's grace. We can try to paint over it, but that doesn't make it go away. We can also affirm this, however. God will get it right, completely right. In the ultimate expressing of God's justice, no mistakes will be made, nothing unfair or unjust will creep in, all possible considerations will be considered in the perfect wisdom of God's infinite mind, and every aspect of his character in its fully integrated unity will be expressed. We can count on this, even when we find ourselves unsure of the details in other areas. Many of our problems as finite created humans come when we attempt to grasp this divine wisdom and make it conform to our human desires, our own constructs and expectations. But we must remember that what God asks of us is to trust what is revealed to us, to trust the wisdom of God that is behind it, and to trust God in and for all that has not been revealed to us. It surprises many Christians to hear that our existence into eternity after Christ's return is not a purely spiritual, disembodied life in a place called heaven. Scripture tells us, especially in Revelation 21, that when God's restoration of all things is complete, it will be a new heaven and a new earth, where the old, sin-soaked world will no longer be, and heaven and earth will be perfectly merged into a place where our presence, where, with our new bodies and all, and God's presence will finally live together as intended. 
And in this new heaven and new earth, we will worship God with all of our being as God always intended. We will experience the pure joy of God's presence in an inexhaustible way forever, just as God always intended. We will not be spirits in the sky, but fully human bodies, minds, and spirits, unspoiled by sin in any way, and inhabiting a heaven and earth together that is also unspoiled by sin in any way. So we come to the end in great hope, great encouragement, and great expectation of what God will do to fulfill all that he has already done, and great expectation of who we will be in that kingdom come, where his will is done on earth as it is now in heaven. But remember that the eternal life given to us in Christ, like we read in John 3.16, is given to us here and now, and it's already begun. We are living that eternal life today not waiting for it to begin someday down the line. It is already ours, and God calls us to live into who we are as his kingdom people, to live our eternal lives today. Our faith is in the God who has already accomplished all of this by defeating sin and death on a cross and from an empty tomb. On the basis of this faith, we have a secure and certain hope for our eternal future. And because we know this, we do not have to worry in this life. We are free to love God and one another with abandon. Like the Thessalonians, let's hear Paul and take it to heart when he says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. John, here we are at the end. The end. <laughs> the end of our series and our discussion of the end. <laughs> As you and I talked about this, you summarized the important points, I thought, very succinctly. Number one, Jesus returns. Number two, the dead are raised. Number three, judgment is pronounced. And finally, number four, eternity continues. Yeah. Why don't we take those one at a time and start with Number one, Jesus returns. I've heard you say that when we look at the Old Testament description of Messiah and then look at the work of Jesus, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus has to return. Yes, look to the Old Testament. Examine what all Messiah needs to do. Then look around and see that not all that has been accomplished yet. Yeah, okay. The Jews expected it to happen all at once. And when it didn't, some had a hard time accepting and recognizing Jesus as Messiah, understandably. Right. What becomes clear with further revelation is that Messiah's work began in Jesus' earthly life, but it has a continuation. Jesus must return in order for all of those expectations to be fulfilled. The New Testament tells us in no uncertain terms that that's exactly the way it's going to work. Got it. So the Messiah has to return because there's more that God told us the Messiah was going to accomplish. That's right. Speaking of Jesus' return, though, there has been all kinds of wild speculation, especially on the modern American front. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it does often go under the heading of rapture, right. and I think it's a very recent, maybe 20th century American phenomenon, although there have been pockets of Christians here and there throughout history that would read this language that way. When people talk about this, though, they are often thinking about something like what Paul wrote in his first letter to the Thessalonians. Yeah. Yeah. He describes Jesus returning and those who are in Christ being caught up in the air with Christ. It's spectacular language there, 
But you've got a fascinating way of reading that. I actually dealt with First Thessalonians 4 in my opening segment because it's a really a core part of how we understand Jesus' return. However, it probably doesn't imply what many people take away from the text because of so many layers of tradition. Paul's description there is consistent with an ancient understanding of the way a king returns to a capital city after having been away at war. Okay. The king and his entourage return from fighting. Typically, a watchman is standing on the wall of the city. A herald comes before the king to announce the return and to request the opening of the city gates. The watchman will open the gates and the greeting committee, the citizens of the city, will pour out of the city out of the gates, and meet the king to welcome him home. And then they escort him back into the city with all kinds of fanfare and celebration. At least all the citizens that are happy to see him return, I guess. (laughs) Right. Yeah. His loyal subjects will come and meet him and come back with him into the city. And this is exactly the imagery that Paul gives us in 1 Thessalonians 4. We see Jesus coming back to earth. In Acts, he ascended into the air, but we're told he will come back in the same way. So the victorious king returns the same way he left. Yeah, exactly. The herald is the archangel in this passage. The call for the gates to open not only includes the gates of the whole earth, but also the gates of the land of the dead. Mm -hmm. So even the dead come out to meet Christ. The Christians that are living at that time will rise up and meet him also, and the king and his greeting party will descend to the earth to continue his reign. That's really what we have here, rather than a blow-by-blow description or a blueprint of something that we're supposed to chart out and diagram. We're getting all the imagery of a king returning and what it meant to those people when it did. They'd be excited to walk him back into the city to be received. You know, some modern American Christians are just so tempted to read passages like these as blueprints of what's going to happen. Understand the context first, though, the context of the first century and before that, the context of the Old Testament. And we often discover something else. I've also taught reception history for things like the book of Revelation. It's fascinating how each subsequent generation receives these passages and says, this is how that pertains to our time. Often it is so completely different than what we do with it. In any case, I don't read the New Testament's eschatological and apocalyptic language as blueprints for a detailed map to what God will do in the future. However, there are certainly riveting accounts that give us strong hints in broad terms about what God ultimately intends to do. Yeah, and speaking of what God intends to do, the second point I said was central to a discussion of the end is that the dead will be raised. We have spent a lot of time in other series (laughs) on this topic of resurrection. Kind of important. Yes, we have. There's this popular phrase, death is a part of life. People say it to reconcile themselves with the deaths they encounter, whether it's someone else or looking forward to their own. I don't like the phrase. Death is the opposite of life. Scripture is clear. In our fallen existence, death is an inescapable reality, but it was never intended to be a part of life. Yes, we've been talking about all of this in the broader context of God redeeming creation, restoring and renewing it to what he had always intended for it to be. At creation, we were created for life. We were created to have life, not to have death. I will hasten to add that this is not only a continued existence in a spiritual sense, but it's an embodied life, a life of wholeness, 
mind, body, and spirit. We were created that way, and our eternal destiny includes it. Now, if I'm initially horrified by the thought that I'll get back the body I have right now, I need not worry. (laughs) Right, right. We did say God will renew and restore. (laughs) God is bringing the perfect restoration of the old, and we can be certain the quality of our resurrected bodies will outperform the current (laughs) ones. (laughs) The second century Gnostics had this strange notion that we are some sort of divine spark caught in a nasty physical body and our goal is for that spark to escape. Certain science fiction authors just eat that stuff up. I've heard you say the Genesis account isn't that we were created as spiritual beings and wedged into a body. We were created as bodies and the spirit was breathed into us. Right. That's an important detail of the creation story when we start talking about the resurrection and the end. The idea that we're essentially spirits and we just temporarily inhabit a body does not fit the Genesis creation account. The pre-fall data that we were given is that we were bodies breathed into by the Spirit of God. That is our essence. Apparently, some people get concerned about what happens if our bodies are completely destroyed. What happens if the body is cremated or something like that? And that's a completely unnecessary fear. If God has the power to make me, God has the power to remake me. Exactly. The way that our bodies are disposed of is entirely irrelevant to the capacity that God has to remake us, as you said. It's not something that Christians need to worry about when it comes to participation in the resurrection. In Jewish thought, the third item, God's judgment, was closely related to resurrection. One of the reasons we are raised is because God steps in and renders God's judgment. And this notion actually develops over time. It did. This idea developed in scripture and in Hebrew thought. In Early Hebrew thought there really was no understanding of judgment that would happen after this life. It was just assumed everything was going to be judged during this lifetime. Okay. That's why we hear in the Psalms, for example, people crying out for justice. God, vindicate me. Come on. Be God. The clock is running. Where are you? I'm about to die, and so on. You've only got so long here, God. (laughs) Right. I can't be vindicated after I die, is the way they were thinking earlier on. Now, that idea that justice had to be worked out in this life later gave way to a clearer understanding. With later revelation, the thinking began to realize that No, indeed, we will not necessarily see all things set right in this life. That certainly squares with reality as we've come to experience it. There are some harrowing accounts in the apocryphal material where Jewish populations see those they consider just or righteous dying very unjustly. And that really presses the question, where is God's justice here? Mm. And the answer is ultimately at the final judgment day. Right. In earlier passages of the Old Testament, we don't hear them saying, relax, God will work it out in the end. <laughs> okay. There's, there's a certain angst that goes with the longing for justice. But given the harsh Jewish experiences in exile, for instance, and then under Greek rule, that ultimately gives way to the idea that God will judge and vindicate. He will reward and punish at the resurrection. They could trust that that day would one day come and that they would be able to participate in it through resurrection. In fact, when we talk about judgment, it's got so many negative connotations to it. But in reality, for Christians, judgment is actually good news, at least if we take seriously what we said a few episodes ago about salvation. Absolutely. And we have to recognize that when we are judged, not everything we've done will be judged well. For Christians, though, that judgment is based on what God accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In short, we escape the judgment that would destroy us 
We do that, though, only if we give up everything we think we can claim and trust exclusively in what God accomplished through Jesus Christ. And by the way, John, some of our listeners will know we've got an entire series on the day of the Lord. If you are a moth towards flame when it comes to eschatology, and I know many (laughs) Christians who are, you might find that interesting. We should hasten to add that this doesn't give us a pass on seeking justice in this life. Perhaps this is the segue into our next point, Ron, eternal life. Mm. Remember that we cannot delay identifying with the people that God intends us to be. God's will is known when it comes to justice in this life, and we are to yield to that justice in the here and now. Yes, you and I had both made that point that eternity begins now. Whatever God intends for us, that transformation inside of us is supposed to begin right now. I dealt with a concern some have that eternal life, continued existence is a depressing thought. Mm. Uh, You'll even find some in secular society that claim it's precisely our mortality that gives meaning to our short existence. If you cannot imagine a life through eternity that retains any meaning, our Christian response is that you haven't yet comprehended who God is. Mm. That pervading sense of ultimate meaninglessness that some people cannot escape is precisely one of the things we suffer as the result of sin, the result of our fallen state. And we as Christians insist God can fix that. When God gets done putting us back together the way we're supposed to be, nothing will be more exciting than that prospect of eternal life. Right. That's where we're headed. That's our destination. That's what eternal life points to, ultimately. And this is something to embrace and to celebrate. And to enjoy. Exactly. To enjoy. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit, is it not? (laughs) Right. Joy. We accept and embrace that. Now, it's not an easy ride. (laughs) It's not an easy journey to get there because of the effects of sin and death. But once God sets all that straight, eternal life continues into the infinite future. After the judgment, it includes the new heaven and the new earth coming down from heaven that we read about at the end of the book of Revelation. The hope expressed there is the perfect solution to the problem that arose in Genesis chapter 3. Well, with that, we have reached the end of the series, and perhaps Mm. it's important that we have come back to the beginning. In our next episode, though, we have a returning guest, Dr. Craig Gilbert, who is a specialist in worship planning. He recently co-authored a book on starting new worship communities. Please join us as we interview him about that book. In any case, this is where we have to conclude this episode and this series, though. (laughs) This long series, the longest we've ever done, Ron. Yes, maybe the longest we will ever do. (laughs) For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. And thank you for listening.